Hey, hey, what's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Craig Bingman to the show. What's happening there, Craig? Uh, just uh, just got back from, from work. Um, the usual frantic uh, trying to get, pick up my kid and get home, and so... Slid in here right at the last. Well, second, you, you had a—I guess you had a pretty good excuse. You said there was a train blocking you from getting home. There, there was actually a train. <laughs> but you made it, and uh, and and we're really uh, psyched to have you on the show. Um, just for those folks that don't know, uh, Craig, he is a scientist and one of the earliest pioneers of the saltwater aquarium hobby. Who was honored with the 2019 Mazna Award for his foundational role in understanding the chemical processes in aquariums. He has helped countless hobbyists overcome challenges with water chemistry in reef tanks and helped pave the way for some of the most common reef tank additives we still use today. Craig was a contributing author to the Aquarium Frontiers article series that proved to solve some of the most critical problems facing reef aquarists in the 1990s. He is a frequent speaker at conferences and shows and what have you, so I'm really psyched to have Craig on tonight. Um, before we start chatting with Craig, though, I do want to thank the sponsors for this live stream, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. Appreciate these companies supporting the stream, and I also really appreciate all you folks out there tuning in and watching. Please spread the word, hit that like button so more people can find this stream, and as always, I encourage you folks to drop questions and comments in the chat i do have some questions that um i have in the can for for craig but we could certainly pivot to uh other things that you folks are interested in in uh, talking about so um craig i i mentioned that uh, i saw you uh, speak last year at macna in uh, milwaukee and and you gave a talk about lime water so i kind of thought it would be cool to dig into some reef tank chemistry stuff and talk about alkalinity and calcium and then kind of get into the cockwasser stuff lime water stuff you know so there's sure. there's um there's various ways right to maintain calcium and alkalinity in a reef tank you can use two-part additives or or three-part if you're dosing i guess magnesium um, you can use a calcium reactor i mentioned cockwasser so those are all methods to supplement alkalinity and and, and calcium you know you hear the term a lot in the hobby about so go ahead. I guess to, to add to that list, there's actually the the one part calcium alkalinity supplements, and the, the one that we thought about the most uh, a while ago is probably calcium acetate. But more recently, people have been using calcium formate for that purpose. So that's another. There's one, two, and three part systems now for maintaining calcium alkalinity. What um, I mean in in terms of the one, two, and three part, obviously you have more flexibility with the more parts is is that a um, a big inherent advantage with going one part versus two versus three part that you have more control um there's a there's a couple of different one part systems i guess i would probably say that that lime water was even before calcium acetate was the original you know uniary one part system for doing that because it delivers calcium and, and uh, alkalinity in the correct proportions um the advantages are, and 
calcium reactors, I guess you could also say, since there's one stream coming out is also kind of a one part, you know, you don't have right. to segregate the chemistry. And then there's the, uh, the, the ionic systems like, uh, the ionic and C balance for the, the two part systems, uh, that are the oldest, I think. Um, and there's some other ones that have come along since then. And then, uh, uh, the three-part systems, which were derived from, uh, I, I think the original inspiration was from Tropic Baron. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to get salt water, seawater mixes transported uh, most economically. And they decided that they could locally source the sodium chloride because it's a majority of the mass. So then they had a mix that was basically seawater except for sodium chloride. And then they, they someone, uh, one, of the, one of the chemists figured out that you could, you could use calcium chloride and sodium bicarbonate and uh, basically generate the, the missing sodium chloride in the system and then turn that into a three-part system where the, uh, the, the third component was a balancing brine. And yeah, that's where most of the magnesium is. Um, but whether or not those systems are tuned to deliver a little bit of extra magnesium to cover the magnesium loss in, in reef aquariums is another, that's another question, right? That's an open question. Um, if you use that third part to bump up magnesium, uh, it gets complicated because uh, so none of the balanced systems are it, it, it's not exactly like a, a contract you know that, that that I am able to sign in blood that it's going to keep your chemistry balanced in your aquarium because there's other things that can disturb that balance so uh, nitrification generates protons right so that that can uh, deplete alkalinity um, so if you have nitrate building up in your aquarium, um, that will definitely cause alkalinity to, to drop and uh, calcium to go down. And no one really knows, uh, well, there's no universal ratio of calcium and magnesium that's right to support calcification in reef aquariums. It, it really depends on what's, what's in the system. And so you can't make one supplement that's going to be perfect for everything. And people try to, you know, kind of like deliver the best that they can. And then you'll have to do some adjustments at the edges. But um, that covers up the, the fact that these systems are so much better than what existed in the hobby uh, when I first got involved thinking about chemistry, which was literally people going out and buying. You know, they had their box of uh, Arm & Hammer sodium bicarbonate. Um, and they, they'd acquired some, some calcium chloride somewhere, maybe snow melt, maybe something a little bit better than that. And they were just like chucking this stuff in their aquarium. You know, uh, sometimes they would put it in a solution. Other times they, they would just let it dissolve in the, in the system. And so uh, the, the calcium and alkalinity was just like all over the map when they did that. They weren't adding it in the correct proportions, right? And so one of the first things that I did was just suggest that people make two solutions, uh, one with calcium and the other with alkalinity that were in approximately the correct proportions and then add equal amounts of, of those two. So that was initially a very, very simple system. It was just one molar sodium bicarbonate and half molar calcium chloride. 
Um, but even that was a lot better than, than what people were doing to that point, which was just pure chaos. So they would have these wild, you know, excursions in, in calcium and alkalinity. And then, you know, uh, I remember this one guy in particular, his name was Anthony, and he was always having snowstorms in his system. So he would, you know, put in too much stuff and it would just wipe out and uh, a bunch of stuff would precipitate and corals don't like that at all, right? So uh, all of those systems can provide a much more kind of like chill uh, aquarium experience um, and reduce your the amount of testing that you have to do really dramatically, like more than an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude. It's just like, you know, these people were just testing every day and, and didn't, were not able to, to stabilize the system. So, so um, intrinsic, uh, intrinsic reap. Thank you so much for that super chat. I really appreciate that. The comments, the stream is one of the best sources of information in the hobby right now. Thank you. Um, keep up the legendary interviews while well, we're, uh, we're doing so with, with Craig on the, uh, on the stream. So Craig, you know, you hear, uh, the term chasing alkalinity a lot in this hobby, you know, and, um, so people yeah, are, are focusing when, when you when you hear that term that the focus is on alkalinity, maybe not as much on calcium and magnesium. Is is that a um, a prudent thing to do in terms of just kind of shooting for a certain level of alkalinity, letting calcium and magnesium kind of fall where they may within within a certain range? Is that um, is that a um, a way to keep a reef tank that um, is um, gonna you know end up in success or not so alkalinity is the fastest moving parameter right so it's limiting of those three um uh, a super fast calcifying uh, aquarium can basically run out of alkalinity in the course of a single day it can uh, go from adequate to levels where um, uh, it's so low that it's really limiting the rate of calcification um, in the system and it, it for shallow tanks with really good light and, and water motion and a bunch of corals you can can contrive a system where if you look at the rate of depletion you would actually go negative not that that's um, uh, physically possible but it means that the uh, the, the system is capable of using more alkalinity than exists in the water at any given time in the course of a single day. So you have to continuously supplement a system like that. Because alkalinity is the one that, that runs short fastest, that's really the one that you have to like watch the most closely to make sure that it's stable. But you do kind of have to watch the other two because, you know, I'm not sure what people mean by, you know, kind of like in intolerance but um, if you don't pay any attention to the other two uh, you can wind up either seriously low or, or high with one or, or both of them depending on other stuff that's happening with the, with the aquarium so it's like uh, yeah there's a little chase uh, on alkalinity it's the one that's kind of like the, the sentinel parameter that tells you that you need to increase or decrease the tempo of, of balance supplementation um, but you have to watch the other stuff too um, if you don't have enough magnesium in the water uh, the buffer system the carbonate buffer system doesn't work 
as well, and you can actually lose um, uh, effective buffering capacity and get more radical pH swings then. Um, and if you don't watch calcium, it can actually crawl up to really high levels. Um, if you've got nitrification in your system, um, it will just keep, and you're using a, a, a system that's delivering calcium carbonate and not a calcium magnesium carbonate, you know, uh, uh, effective final, final product, uh, it, it will, it will just creep up over time and it will get high enough that, um, it puts you actually at some risk of, of having one of these precipitation events because, you know, uh, whoa, I didn't realize that my calcium was, was up to 700, you know, and, uh, that means that, uh, you, the amount of alkalinity that you need to have in the water at a given pH to just cause things to completely wipe out is, is almost, you know, just half as much as it would be uh, with a normal calcium level in the environment. So you have to watch What the um, What would you say is a, uh, a safe range for um, calcium in terms of a, a low and a high, you know, when you start going below a certain level and above a certain level, when you should be concerned for calcium? And I'll ask you the same question for magnesium. Well, so I think that, that you really ought to aim to, to keep you know, within 10% of natural seawater values for both of those. Um, there's no reason not to. Um, that, that's assuming that you've got a salinity of 35 in your system, so full strength uh, seawater. Um, and, and so, I don't know, you know, you can, you can get by certainly if, you, if you've got typical salinity with, with calcium is in the 350 range, that, that works. Um, people will run up to 500 in some cases. There's no, as nearly as I, I can tell, there's no advantage to running higher than natural seawater calcium concentrations. Um, and similarly with, with magnesium, um, you know, you want to be in the 1300, 1400 range. Some people will let it dip down to 1200 uh, ppm. I'm using the parts per million standard that most people usually use. I think it's more like, you know, I, I won't do the molar stuff. But um, uh, I, I don't think that, similarly with magnesium, I don't know that there's any conspicuous advantage to trying to run at higher than natural seawater magnesium values either. Um, your sea surface, uh, surface seawater on a coral reef is typically super saturated with respect to calcium carbonate. So you've got a lot of that stuff in the water um, if your pH values are, are reasonable. So um, it, there's no point in going too high, um, and the chemistry starts to get a little bit weird when the when those values get too low as well. So plus or minus. Gotcha. So um, what about the variability of alkalinity? You know, I, you hear a lot um, people say that you know alk swings can be the cause of certain issues with let's say SPS in terms of um, you know an acropora. Uh, showing signs of stress. What? Um, how? How important is it to keep a stable DKH and alkalinity level in a reef game? So I think that yeah, I think that with calcium and, and magnesium, as far as the biological uptake pathways for those, um, they're pretty they're they're 
pretty well along the, the, the towards being saturated. So small changes in those parameters aren't going to affect um, what what's available to the organism to take up in, in any significant way. Um, whereas alkalinity is if alkalinity, uh, the, the organisms will 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 feel that. And, and they will have twice as much alkalinity available to them, and that that means something because um, that such that system is typically not not as saturated as, as calcium and magnesium. So um, swings in those and and that's actually a, a very biologically active component too. Uh, it doesn't just participate in. Um, skeleton formation, it's, it's also available to the symbiotic algae in, inside corals as well. So there's a, one of the things that calcification does is it basically generate, if you're starting, if you have bicarbonate in the water, it gives you a proton and it frees a carbon dioxide. So you put, it, put away a carbonate, start out with two bicarbonates, more or less. Um, and you put away a carbonate, and then that gives you a free CO2 that can go into photosynthesis. So that's one of the things that the um, animals can, one of the things that the, the system, the coral system, gets out of it. And it's an advantage that corals have, and it's an advantage that coralline algae have um, over, over animals that are, are, are not animals, organisms that are uh, dependent on carbon dioxide are, only for photosynthesis because there's a lot more bicarbonate in seawater than there is free CO2 on a molar basis. So there's a lot of bicarbonate, just a little bit of free CO2. So um, if if your alkalinity situation is not not great, uh, you you may tip if, if the system is not poised to calcify, you can easily have the system tip over into other modes where like green algae are dominant as opposed to the pink algae and living corals. Um, so that's one, when I was doing chemistry early on, that was one thing that I saw in a lot of cases is that systems that did have a lot of problems with hair algae often would have inadequate, like lower than seawater um, alkalinity levels. And, you know, that low alkalinity also, I think, can let um, the saturation of, this, of the system go down and can let mineralized phosphate go back into the water column where stuff can start using it. So um, there's a lot of compelling reasons to keep your calcium and alkalinity um, in, in reasonable values. And when it drops... Uh, the organisms, the calcifying organisms, feel it. I think um, it can mean that the feedstock for photosynthesis is changing by a factor of two or a factor of three over the course of a single day. And photosynthesis is a it, it's it's a it's a vital thing, but it's also kind of like catching lightning or handling fire, you're, you're, you're potentially generating radicals, or you are generating some radicals uh, in the system. And if the organisms, like expectations for 
for raw materials for photosynthesis um, aren't met or changing wildly, then the, the photosynthetic system can, can start causing damage to the organism as well. So um, I, do, I do think that there's definitely something to tip burn and, and that kind of stuff where, and corals where the alkalinity is, you know, even higher than, than is expected can also have an impact on, on photosynthesis as well. So would, would, would you stables, stables good. If you can, if you can pull that off. What, um, what would you define as stable? You know, I, you hear a lot about, um, alkalinity being in the seven to 11, you know, DKH range as, as being, you know, within an acceptable range for that parameter, uh, in terms of variability, would, uh, what would you say within, you know, if, if that, if that is indeed an acceptable range, what uh, within that range in terms of variability? So that's that's that wouldn't be an ideal range to see over a single day. That's right. for sure, right? So um, um, operationally, I don't I don't know at what point the you know the alkalinity can actually change a little bit even on, on the water flowing over shallow reefs. There's an alkalinity effect that's caused by calcification, which is measurable by chemical oceanographers, right? So they can actually measure the, the calcification rate of, of the reef ensemble by measuring the alkalinity of the water, you know, before it hits and after it comes out the other side. Um, yeah, in terms of like DKH values, if you can get the variability less than one over the course of a day, I think that would be uh, peach gain. Obviously, I, I've when I was keeping aquariums, they would vary more than that. Um, was that ideal? Probably not. I mean, we didn't have the uh, the tools, you know, the measurement tools and, and uh, control tools that people have available to them now. That. Well, uh, so what what are your thoughts about you know alkalinity monitors and actually having those control you know your calcium and alkalinity within the tank? I think this. Um, so I'm a I'm a chemist. So I think more knowledge about chemistry is almost always a good thing. Um, it almost never. You you can arrange to have it hurt you if you do the wrong things with the information, right? But, um, uh, so I I think that they're fantastic. Uh, they're expensive, but you know if you if you can swing it, it's a it's a fantastic tool. And I think that you can really learn with one of those monitors just by watching the system. You, you can you can have you can range have demonstrated for you um, what I've been telling people about for the last what thirty years or something about how how much variability you can have in a single the course of a single day in alkalinity in your system right and uh, that's that's kind of like a big wake up call I think for for people when when they actually see that um, uh, I feel about control the same way that I feel about controlling anything else. It's like, I, I, uh, I think that people would do well to figure out how to run a simple system with no control before they dive off into something with control. And if you've got um, like a, just a simple, you know, kind of like, mixed soft and stony coral reef tank you know something that's a little chill in terms of calcification rate um, 
and just figure out how to like run a system like that before you spend ten thousand dollars on you know a balls to the wall automated you know you know really complicated system um uh, i if people can can afford that kind of system i think i think it's fantastic and uh um, I always like to see people spending money in, in the industry, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a good thing in general. Um, and uh, it helps push technology forward and it helps keep the, the vendors uh, supplying interesting products for us to use. But you don't want to have like this really complicated system and not understand how the pieces are, are really working and what the underlying rates really ought to be. So before you put a controller on a system, you got to figure out how to get that parameter almost dialed in, you know, on, on your own with dosing or something like a dosing pump or manual dosing. And then you know what the expectation is. So then, then you can set your controller, uh, to deliver sane amounts of, of that material to the system. So people with controllers get in get into trouble when they're expecting, you know, a lot of the limiting valves or limiting, you know, whatever for either flow of supplements into the system or carbon dioxide into a CO2, calcium carbonate CO2 reactor, right? So if you've if you're not close with the way you've adjusted your needle valve, and your uh, CO2 delivery system can, can dump 20 times as much carbon dioxide into that, into that uh, reactor than you need in the course of a day, then you are one problem with that solenoid valve or whatever from, from de- destroying your aquarium. Um, it's a single point of failure. You haven't done anything to isolate yourself from it, and your stuff is going to die. So Yeah, I, uh, I'm an advocate of... Um using those tools for monitoring purposes and not necessarily for, for controlling, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I, others, uh, you know, have the same point of view that the more different variables that are in play, there's more points of failure and that can lead to, um, some unwanted consequences. Yeah. Well, I think that, so I, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm okay with controlling this stuff, but, uh, you really got to know, what you signed yeah. up for and you've got to know what what the downsides are to the, all the all the points of failure that can happen in the system and you know sanjay actually does really nice talks about this and you know i've known sanjay forever and we've talked about this kind of stuff since i was in new york and he would come in drive into the city and we'd go grab indian food you know um and uh if you, if you lean too much on the control and you don't understand what the proper adjustment of that valve or whatever would be without a controller on the system, um, your stuff's going to die. Yeah. It's just a matter of when. So um, you mentioned carbon dioxide, and, and Jason Langer has a, um, a really good question. You know, So we've had wildfires in Canada and the smoke is uh, seeping down into uh, parts of the United States. So his question is... Uh, it's been awful here in Madison. Oh, actually. yeah. So uh, we were up in the, whatever the, the units are, we we're up in over 300, wow. which is in the, like, Not, you know, 
you're going to die if you go outside. <laughs> that's not range. a that's not He's a good like, uh, situation. So his question is: With the recent poor air quality, what effects could we see to our reef tank? I draw outside air to boost pH, but many are seeing pH depressed when the smoke is bad. Any other concerns? So I don't think that the smoke um, depressed pH when the smoke is bad. That's really interesting. So this the amount of burning has not changed the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you know, uh, appreciably uh, from the from the standpoint of a reef aquarium husbandry. Um, if, it, if it had, then, you know, we would have even worse problems than we have now. I have been wondering, though, what effect all this other crap in the air mm. might be having on our systems, because we don't know what a lot of these organics, you know, are, might might do uh, in a marine system. We have the we have the the mystery of our, you know, your people's corals will get sick every spring. Now, what's up with that? But I suspect that it's actually um, something related to the 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 ground thawing out. And some either nitrogen or other volatile, you know, nitrogen oxide kind of compounds popping up, and uh, a bunch of that stuff is fairly potent um, uh, messenger molecules, diffusible messenger molecules in, in biological systems. So it may just be that you know you're getting in the spring the the corals are are getting a you know a, a, a signal to to die basically. From, from the air. Um, and there may be some like increased carbon monoxide or something like that may may have a negative effect on, on our systems as well, in addition to who knows what, what these other um, organics are doing. So if you can um, filter the, the air that you're drawing uh, from the outside as much as possible, I think that that's a, that's a great thing to do. Um, and it's a great thing to try to keep the air in your in your house as clean as possible as well. I mean, I've got, I think everyone had made it, many people made a fairly substantial investment in indoor during COVID. And, uh, you know, I flipped all that stuff on when the smoke started coming in. And that's good for people. And I, it can't be bad for your aquariums either to keep the air in yeah, uh, Jason adds, when the smoke was terrible, I noticed that my nitrate jumped for two days when I anticipated them to go going down. So I think that there may be, so the, the stuff that comes off of fires um, uh, potentially has very potent signaling molecules in it, and the system may be responding to it, and you may see you know, organisms not doing their job as well as they as they normally would. So it's not completely surprising to me that that pH might change. Um, maybe photosynthesis photosynthesis is depressed in the system, or something else is going on. Um, so uh, not not completely surprising that these sort of external um, insults. Would wind up magnified in in a reef aquarium. I mean, one of the one of the cool things about reef aquariums, from my perspective, is that they are like amplifiers for the chemistry that's happening in aquatic systems. 
volumes because you've got everything really confined in a small volume of water. So whatever chemical changes are hap happen in the ocean or in nature are just amplified by the, mm. the smallness and the, the, of, of, the, of the system. And it makes it a lot easier to figure out what's going on. So, you know, I mean, maybe there's some experiments out there for, for people to, to try to like, you know, start bleeding in some of these uh, controlled amounts of some of these potential diffusible signaling molecules into reef aquariums and see what happens. Interesting. So, all right, we, we've, um, we've been talking about alkalinity, calcium, magnesium, um, some carbon dioxide talk there about um, how its impact on, on pH. Let, let's talk about pH, you know, and, and it's important in terms of keeping a, a reef tank. And John Wright has this question. I, I had the question myself in my notes. Um, John Wright says, you know, Chris Meckley says, um, alkalinity isn't as important as pH. I'm confused. Do we need to check both regularly? So, you know, the, um, what, he, what he's referring to there is, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need to chase the alkalinity, chase the pH so you can um, achieve an elevated pH for your, uh, your tank. And that will lead to, um, you know, increased growth and, and what have you and, and have a lot of benefits. So what, what's, what's your thought in terms of chasing pH versus focusing on alkalinity? This all reminds me of those, what are they, Bud Light commercials where people were like, tastes great, less filling, and they're like, kind of like beat each other up over it. Um, uh, both can be true at the same time, right? So, uh, or, or not, I suppose, in the case of a certain uh, beverage that was being advertised. So, uh, both, both pH and alkalinity are important. And... Uh, I, I would I would leave it there, um, and have left it there for for my whole career basically, and the reason that that I want to leave it that way is because, you know, okay, so let's let's say the pH is the most important thing, and I have a, the, whatever the perfect value of pH is supposed to be this week, eight point five, right, but I only have an alkalinity of uh, of one one dKH. I don't think my aquarium is going to be very happy, no. even though I have the perfect pH, right? So, um, and let's say that I have the perfect alkalinity value, whatever, whatever that's supposed to be this week, right? Or whoever, whoever you're talking to, wherever you're talking to somebody. Um, and the pH in the, in the aquarium is 6.5. Well, I don't think that's going to work out very well either, right? So clearly both of these parameters are, are, are important. Um, and, uh, um, if you're doing sane things as far as supplementing, you know, calcium and alkalinity, you'll usually get them to kind of like fall into some sort of, you know, reasonable parameter space. Um, I do think that pH may have been a little bit neglected. Maybe it did need a little bit more love than it was getting. Um, but you know, it's been getting love for a long time. So when I was over at Greg Scheimer's house back in the nineties and we, we would all get together and look at, you know, Greg, Greg Scheimer had some incredible, programs, and he had probably 20 or 30 people over at his house. I mean, we're all down in the basement and we're all very, you know, breathing hard because we're looking at pretty corals. <laughs> and, uh, so, 
the pH in his, in his aquariums just started like bottoming out. I mean, like was, was dropping like a rock. And Greg was like really alarmed that someone had done something to his aquariums, <laughs> right? You know, just like, um, because, you know, you hear about people doing that kind of stuff in pet stores, you know, poisoning systems just to be, just, just to for the sake, eat, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, now I'm like, how many people are here? What's the volume of the basement? I'm like, I think it's carbon dioxide. I think we're all just making enough carbon dioxide down here that it's. And this was a really long time ago before people had CO2 monitors that were, you know, ubiquitously available as, as they are now. You'd go on Amazon buy a, buy a CO2 monitor without for, for not very much money. Um, and our houses have become very, very tight, very well insulated um, as they become more energy efficient. And indoor carbon dioxide levels have gone up. Um, and it's not good for the aquariums. I guess unless you've got a planted tank, then that would be good, right? Because they're always worried about losing carbon dioxide. Um, uh, and it's it's not good for people either. Um, it's not because you know you start to feel sleepy and not not well above a certain point. When I, when I was in graduate school, you know, there was like I can't remember what day was it. Monday. It's either Monday. I think it's Monday. Um, at 4 p.m., everybody would go down to the seminar room, and it was like the speaker of the week, right? And, uh, uh, you know, I'd make it about 20 minutes into it, and there was, like, the makeup here in that room was really bad, and I just, like, I'm like, just about ready to, like, pitch over <laughs> um, just because of the amount of carbon dioxide. So it will make you feel unwell in your own home. So... Uh, um, if if you are guided to increase the amount of makeup air uh, in your house and make it healthier that way um, by chasing pH in your aquarium, I think that that's probably a good thing. But you know, you could, you could do that anyway. You could get a uh, you know one of these uh, cross current ventilation systems for your HVAC uh, and and have better air air for your family. Um, all the time. It decreases radon in, in your house and it decreases the amount of organics that are, that are floating around that are outgassing off of, you know, virtually everything that, that people make now. So, yeah, I actually have a, um, well, I guess what's called an air exchange unit. So, you know, that, um, that, yep. that in the wintertime that helped, you know, I live in Vermont. And so in the wintertime, my windows are just shut really tight. So having that air exchange, Absolutely. yeah, having that air exchange unit, I think it raised my pH like 0.2 pH points, which is pretty significant. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so all right. So speaking of pH and elevated pH and what have you, um, I don't know if I mentioned that you you gave a talk at Mac. No, I guess I did mention you you gave a talk at Mac about lime water and and so you know lime water Kalkwasser has made a uh, it seems like a big resurgence among reef keepers. Uh, over the uh, the past uh, I don't know how many years, but it's it's right. it's being utilized by a lot more folks. So, you know, there, there's a lot of nuances I I, I find in terms of um, you know using calcwas or lime water. A lot of questions that uh, I think are interesting. Like you, you know you hear about um, and you mentioned this in your talk using pickling lime or food grade you know calcium hydroxide. You know that it's cheap. Right. What have you? How how important is the quality the grade? of the lime water that you're using can you get by with the 
pickling lime or does it make sense if you want to invest the money in high grade you know Kalkwasser is would that be a better way to go so uh, when you mix calcium hydroxide um, you will uh, precipitate some possible impurities in the system so if you dispense clarified lime water, the clear product, not the turbid stuff on the bottom or the film that occurs on the top, um, you'll have a lot less of certain impurities. Um, so there's all the, I shouldn't say all, many of the like heavy metal compounds that might be there um, often have really insoluble hydro, uh, insoluble hydroxide salts and they're they're gone they're at the bottom of the basin um, magnesium is really insoluble at lime water ph so uh, there's no magnesium that will come into your system uh, if you're dosing calcium hydroxide um, through dosing clarified lime water i remember that in the a long time ago somebody had a product where they were putting uh, it was supposed to be a mixture of calcium hydroxide and magnesium hydroxide. And that was just like, you know, dude, you need to figure out some chemistry before you start selling stuff to people. Um, so that, that didn't last very long. I think I, I did that to it enough that it went away and people don't do that anymore, but that's, you know, uh, and I think that that's, that's actually also part of the reason why um, it was reputed early on that uh, dosing lime water would cause magnesium to precipitate out of your system and uh, as nearly as i can tell unless you have one of the like the wipeout events that i showed in, in my magna talk where you put in so much that you're actually making magnesium hydroxide uh, form that the magnesium drops that people were seeing were really just from coral and algae growing mm. in the aquariums. Um, so, um, redirect me to your original question. I think I've kind of, kind of gotten off of the weeds do, here. Does, does, the, um, does a higher grade of um, Calgwasser okay. matter? So, um, it it, I think it depends. Um, one of the things that uh, the lower grades of lime water probably have uh, it in more abundance is some silica. And you, you can have a couple of different opinions about that. Uh, I've always been of the opinion that that's kind of a good thing because it promotes the growth of diatoms in your aquarium over other stuff. Um, and, you know, diatoms are the grass of the sea. So if you're going to have any algae besides symbiotic algae in your in your corals and maybe pink coralline algae if, if you like that I, I certainly do um diatoms are my next choice because uh the snails eat them you know the comb tooth tangs and blennies and everybody everybody eats diatoms um and uh and yeah they grow in your glass you know the solution to that is as simple as that and then then, then they're gone. Uh, but certainly lower grades of lime water could have more silica and high pH will 
uh, mobilize, solubilize the silica in the product um, pretty effectively. So that's one thing that could show up in, in a lower grade of, of lime water. Um, there's some other stuff that doesn't follow the rules of insoluble hydroxide. So if there was maybe arsenic or some other stuff that, that has uh, kind of an anionic uh, uh, hydrolysis form in water, you might get some impurities uh, like that in, in the system as well. Um, but uh, settling lime water, settled lime water is kind of a self-purifying system in a lot of regards. Um, so that's why people can get by with the lower lower grades of lime. Um, certainly there's, there's like, if you can afford the higher grade stuff, um, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself, right? Um, and you can have more certitude and maybe uh, lower diatom growth if that's important to you as well. But I've managed aquariums with, uh, you know, food grade lime in the past, and that that's worked out. That worked out okay for me. So you you mentioned impurities a couple of times, you know, and and um, is is the big fear that the um, impurities will be in the sediment, and that the uh, the sediment is something that it could potentially leach into the uh, into the into the lime water itself, and yeah, so. Okay. There are some people who are like intentionally dosing cloudy lime water. Slurry, and you're talking about? Just yeah, just or yeah, slurry or maybe not quite even that dense. Just like there's, it's still cloudy, so to increase the concentration of it. Um, and uh, everything that I just said about you know stuff precipitating it out, you just like forget about all that. You're getting everything you know that's in the in the lime in in the system that way. Um, and, and so for, for cases like that, it, it may be justified to use a higher grade of, of calcium hydroxide just because the you're, you can't lean on these uh, like self, self-purifying self properties of, of settled lime water. If, um, if you're using, um, whether it's a calc stirrer or a, um, you know, a container that has the uh, lime water in it with the, with the sediment, you know, on the bottom, how often would you uh, recommend changing out that sediment to avoid any, um, you know, thing bad happening in terms of, you know, some of those impurities leaching out into the system? Is is that something that should be done every couple of months? Should you not worry about it? Oh, I I, I clean it out every couple of months for sure, um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, there's a bunch of bad stuff that's laying around at the bottom of it, um, and you've also probably getting an increasing amount of undissolved calcium hydroxide down there as well. And so if you have any glitch uh, in your technical system that causes that sediment to be uh, put into your aquarium, the size, the yield of the nuclear bomb that goes off is just increasing the more of that kind of sludge that you have down at the bottom of your system. So. Does, does that, um, you know, suggest that the folks that do the calc slurry dosing are kind of um, playing a little Russian roulette? So and I, I mentioned my talk, so there's like about the talk. And before I, I hadn't really looked at it since I gave the talk. And I thought I, since I was going to talk with you, I better remember what it, what it was that I said. <laughs> um, uh, 
And then I remembered that the QR codes were, were broken, and I tried to, to update all that stuff. So um, at some point, I've got to like update all the QR codes. But one of the talks that I that I linked out to uh, was the the Masna Award for Alf Nielsen. And very early on, you know, he recognized the limitations of, of lime water, right? So saturated lime water can You're limited by evaporation how much of that you can put in your aquarium. And if you've got a lot of corals and you don't have very much evaporation, you can wind up short, right? So his solution was, and I think Alf was really the first person who did all this like stirring stuff and, you know, separate carbon dioxide uh, injection for pH control. Um, that, that kind of a system does overcome those limitations of, of, of lime water. And um, uh, you're, you're in a control situation then because the, the pH is usually being actively controlled. Um, and everything that we just said about control systems begins to apply, right? So um, get a CO2 cylinder. And if it all dumps in your aquarium, everything's dead. And if it runs dry and you're still pumping a bunch of calcium hydroxide in your system, then the pH is going to go really high, right? right? Um, so you've got to got to like really watch this stuff very very carefully and make sure that or or if the pH, you know, if your, your system even has some protections built into it, then the the lime water uh, slurry will shut off and your system won't have any alkalinity going into it. Anymore. Then it, you know you're less than a day away from from a crash uh, there if you're in like one of these top top light top flow you know reef aquariums and uh, you know I likened to this like grabbing a tiger by the tail and people really have done that um, when you want to crowd that much coral um, into a glass box. And have it grow the way that it does for us. Our corals and our aquariums grow the same as they do in the wild, if not maybe a little bit faster. You know, they probably make more progress because stuff's not bothering them, not eating it as much um, in a healthy reef aquarium than it is in the wild. It's not being tormented by you know butterfly fish coming by and pecking at it and stuff like that. So, um, you know, our, our systems can corals can grow phenomenal rates uh in in reef aquariums and you know what can i say you you signaled your uh willingness to to endure endure this you know when you spent all that money on the system you got involved with the hobby so you know it's hard what can i say it's it's still not it's still not foolproof it's still not you know uh even the most experienced people in the hobby continue to find, you know, creative ways that they haven't, they personally haven't experienced yet to wipe out their systems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Rich is, is really uh, um, very forthcoming about anything that, that goes off in his Rich, Rich Ross. Jason, yeah, Rich like, Ross. Yeah, Ross, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I, I don't have anything, I've got like a very simple system set up right now, um, but, you know, as, as I, set up something bigger I'm, i'll have my own stories about you know interesting new ways that i found to, to kill stuff and i yeah you know, i i think that i probably actually have um 
in the, in the course of dabbling around and trying trying different things, I think I probably have killed stuff in, in some ways that uh, people probably have not. Um, so, Craig, let's do a uh, let's do a time check. I know you uh, you 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 mentioned that you were uh, potentially under a uh, time constraint. What uh, what do we got left there for you? I think I'm still okay for a okay. while. Um, my kid got fed. I think he's happy. <laughs> Um, and I think Michelle actually, I thought she was going to be uh, uh, not not around um, at all, but she's she's here now. So we can keep going. All for right, a while. cool. Yeah, because um, we've got some more questions about Kalkwasser, and also uh, we've got some questions about trace elements. I know we wanted to talk about uh, trace elements and, and reef tanks. Just a couple more quick questions for you about uh, Kalkwasser. Um, Alex Correa, hey Alex, what's happening? Um, okay, his question is, um, there, well, he's got several questions. Is the presence of aluminum in any cockwasser a matter of any concern in the long run? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, aluminum is one, of the, it's one of the ions that can occur in seawater that I think we don't have as good a handle on as, as I, I wish we did. Um, um, uh, it could be of concern um, if your if your aquariums. So the alum, the actual soluble aluminum concentration in the ocean is really quite low, um, and that's because your sort of seawater is close to like this minimum solubility zone for aluminum. So low pH values, stuff gets protonated, and it's more soluble. Um, and at really high pH values, like in lime water, um, the, the form is more of like an aluminum hydroxide complex. It's negatively charged, and that can be more soluble as well. So uh, aluminum is one of, the, one of the ions that can be solubilized in, in in a, in a vat of lime water. Um, I think that once you put it in your aquarium, though, it should become insoluble pretty quickly. Um, but that that would be um, a potential point of, of concern. I don't know what the threshold is for, for concern on, on that particular parameter. Uh, okay. A um, couple more quick questions about uh, lime water. What um, what would you say is the best measure to determine the potency of calcwasser? Would that be pH or conductivity? I've heard of um, using both to measure the potency. Um, it's uh, probably whichever one is actually working correctly. <laughs> so either <laughs> for okay. you, right? So conductivity can be wrong and pH can be wrong. Um, uh, Taking your pH probe out of your aquarium and shoving it into a vat of lime water is potentially uh, not very good for the pH probe if you're precipitating uh, calcium carbonate out on the, the junctions. Um, so that could be problematic if you had your own, you know, pH meter for that. Um, that said, e either one of them should be just fine if they're if they're working properly. Um, another um, question in terms of. Uh... I guess I guess the the conductivity, um, because it's a, a, a linear scale, um, 
might be a little bit easier for people to interpret than pH, which is on a log scale. Um, gotcha. What about a um, the best delivery system for lime water? You know, uh, there there you've got calc stirrers, you've got drums, and um, I'm currently using a um, you know a couple of thirty gallon drums that I have the uh, the calc washer in the RODI water. I put the calc washer um, powder in. I fill it up with the RODI water. I have a, a peristaltic dosing pump that draws on that drum and it doses a certain amount of the um, saturated solution to my uh, to my system. Versus yeah. using a uh, a calc stir. Would would a, would a calc stir you know and and would the calc stir the the common way to use one of those is to have like your um, auto top off RODI go through that, which you know can yeah. be problematic because you if you have different evaporation rates depending on the uh, the time of the year, then that could increase some variability. But is is that also a, a problem because of um, and, I, and I guess the way to get around that is maybe you do not use that um, method to replace all the evaporated where you use a, a, a set amount so you're not going to have that variability but I guess my question for you is that with a calc stir and if you're running RODI through the calc stir is that diluting the solution more so than if you had a stationary drum where the um, the solution is as you would say uh, kind of like a settling solution um. That was well, a very long-winded so, question, but... Uh, no, that's fine. Yeah. So the, the caulk stir systems are, you know, more dynamic and less settled. Um, so the whatever solids impurities that, that are in the lime water that, that would have settled out are going to be flushed into the system with something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm worried anytime somebody has, like, the top up of their system plumb directly to their RODI just because you've got potentially all the you know all the water in the water tower like aimed at your system mm. in, in case there's a there's a problem and people wipe out uh, their systems because of low salinity in that way all the time and you'll wipe it out even faster if you've got a caulk stir you know and uh, you've got a leak in your system and you're you have a volume target, right, for yep. your auto top off. And uh, so suddenly, you know, the pH in your aquarium is 10 and everything's dead. Whereas if, if you were using settled lime, um, especially if you're just dosing a, a fixed amount of it every day for like pH control or because you know that that's about how much how much you want to use, right, um, uh, that those things aren't going to happen to you. So any time that it's a, a live system with potentially, you know, thousands, millions of gallons of, of stuff aimed at your aquarium, you got to think about that really carefully, uh, as opposed to uh, a vat uh, with a pump in it. And all this is kind of like by gravity below where it goes into your aquarium. So it's not going to siphon into your aquarium. It has to has to be very on purpose, you know, when, when it goes in, as opposed to, you know, whoops, my, there's a problem with my, there's a leak or something like that. And, and then you've got all kinds of problems. So, um, I'm just like a, I'm like a really old school kind of guy. And we used a lot of settled lime water. Um, 
and we were pretty happy about it, and we generally didn't kill our aquariums with it when, when we did it that way. Um, if people want to do, you know, other things, then again, you know, you just got to be, got to be, got to, got to understand fully what you're signing up for when you, when you implement something like that in your aquarium. And when you say settled lime water, you're talking about not having a pump to stir that um, solution around every now and then. You're talking about just putting some um, lime in the oh. uh, drum, filling it up, and so, so you could. You could intermittently stir the lime water. For example, you could like uh, um, stir it up uh, during the day when you're not dosing lime water because you're using lime water for pH control and carbon dioxide neutralization at night. So you can make sure that it stays saturated. But in a like a thirty gallon, you know, one of those uh, white brute, you know, food grade. Uh, uh, poly, uh, yeah, yeah, poly, polyethylene uh, containers with a lid on it. Um, lime water will will last a long time and stay pretty concentrated. And again, you can measure that empirically. You no, know, you know, you you can feel like you should be stirring it up or be afraid that its concentration is going down, but it's trivial to measure. And another way that you didn't. Um, mentioned that you can actually assess uh, the concentration of lime water is uh, you can do a calcium test on it if you dilute it down as well. You can do an alkalinity test on it as well. So there's a lot of ways of getting at the concentration um, in addition to pH and, and conductivity. And if you do those things during the life cycle of, of 30 gallons a couple times, uh, you may convince yourself that the concentration really only goes down to 20% by the time you're at the end and that's something that you can live with without you know introducing more complexity and, and points of failure into the system by stirring it every 24 hours or something gotcha uh, so calcium whenever you stir um, a suspension of chemicals they can be abrasive it can kill your power head or stir bar you can add the stir bar burn a hole in the bottom of the container your power head may be like getting kind of like uh, savaged by the particles and then it's shedding all kinds of stuff into your lime water that you don't like rare earth elements and whoever whatever else comes out of dying power heads right um, and it, it just just may not be worth it for the for the improvement in, in saturation that, that you achieve so I didn't, I didn't, I never did that, right? So I, I knew how, how much uh, the concentration of lime water would go down in my, in my dosing basin. Um, and I just made the decision that it wasn't worth adding any more complexity. Gotcha. Um, I'm seeing some calls for people to hit the, uh, the like button. Yes, please hit that like button. So, um, so more people can uh, find the stream. That would be, uh, that would be awesome. The very, um, engaging interesting uh discussion so craig let's uh let's let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about uh trace elements another question that alex had was uh, please let us know what trace elements we should be serious to dose or is that necessary at all so i guess i guess you know there's there's kind of a c couple questions within that one question and that is um do, do we need to be um 
you know, dosing certain types of trace elements to a reef tank on a regular basis or will um, regular water changes, will that uh, suffice to replenish trace elements? And then uh, I guess the next part of that question is what trace elements should we be most concerned about in terms of adding to the tank? So I've never really thought of water changes as a suitable mechanism for trace element replenishment because by definition they're present at trace concentrations uh, in seawater. Um, the ones that we care about are, are often under biological control. There's, they're, they're actively depleted in seawater by our organisms, otherwise we wouldn't care about them, right? And so like alkalinity, um, the amount of iron in, a, in an aquarium can, can go downhill really fast um, over the course of the day. Um, and ditto with some of the other uh, some of the other elements as well. If you're not if you're not maintaining intentionally maintaining much higher than typical levels in seawater, uh, just for the purpose of being able to measure them, right? So there was a limited detection issue with with ICP for a number of biologically relevant elements, and I think that there was some suggestion that people kind of keep them higher than I think that they probably ought to be, uh, just so. You could see them in their tests, um, and they could say that they measured them. Um, that so the elements that, that okay. So then there's there's the there's a, a a group of people who feel like these things could can be um, well supplemented chemically, and then there's another group of people who say, you know, all the all the essential elements that we might think about dosing are probably also present in food, right? So um, if it's an element that fish care about um, or corals care about, it's probably coming in with the exception of the mineral needs of the system to some degree in the, in the food that you're adding to the aquarium. So um, there's, there's some exceptions to that. So the, the stuff that you may be getting at least enough of by feeding the system um, are, are the you know the ones that are the elements that are involved in uh, metabolic processes like uh, iron, uh, enzyme cofactor metals, um, maybe zinc as well, um, uh, copper. You have to have a certain amount of copper. Most, almost all biological systems need some copper, um, and you know manganese and the whole you know first first row transition elements, um, and then so along those lines, um, if people are dosing trace elements, I think that the the feeling has been that you know ICP testing allowed us to um, figure out what was going on as, as far as how much trace elements that we needed to dose. And that's not exactly true, actually. So um, there's some colorimetric chemistry for iron and copper that are really uh, sufficient and useful to monitor the levels that are present in reef aquariums. So Hawk has a, a ferrozyne test kit 
for iron that goes down to one part per billion. Um, uh, and you can kind of see your your eye, human eye is like really, really quite a quite a sensitive photometric uh, uh, equipment as far as you know finding traces of color. Um, you can probably even eyeball it even lower than that. And copper, um, there's a porphyrin method that's good down to, I think, 100 parts per. It's 0.1 ppb. So it's 100 parts per trillion, I guess. So those are ultra sensitive. Uh, methods and with those I was able to recover measurable copper and uh, iron in almost all the reef tanks that I would look at that were healthy functional you know thriving reef tanks I'd find you know a few parts per billion of, of, of colorimetrically measurable iron in the aquarium and then if you have like a trace element supplement that has kind of like more or less the right stuff in it. Um, you might be able to tell if you're having an adequate amount of trace elements around just by measuring iron. Why? Why? Uh, oh, go ahead. That 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 assumes that we know what that kind of like the extended red field ratio is for for the demand in, in the aquarium, um, and then we can we can we can watch one of those and know that everything else is going in. Approximately the right ratios. That that assumes that people know what the right ratios are, and I would hope that the people who are making trace element supplements have some idea about what that is. But you know, you never know in the aquarium world because there's a there's there's some people who just have like um, they're just so bold, you know, <laughs> they're, they're willing to like put some stuff out there that's just not very well. Um, the foundation for it is not as solid as as one might might hope, but with a well-regarded trace element supplement, you actually might be able to watch that with a with a sensitive colorimetric test. Um, there are some other elements that are really hard to test for that are interesting to me, and I don't know how interesting they are to other people. So when I when I was doing the like element of the month stuff for Aquarium Frontiers. And I intended that to go on for, for longer than I kind of like had to like actually finish up my projects and stuff like that at work. So I had to take a hiatus from the aquarium world for a while. But um, um, I marched through the halogens. And so I did fluoride and chloride I didn't talk about because there's just so much of it in seawater that, you know, um, I don't think anyone's reef aquarium is likely to suffer from uh, chloride deficiency salinity we call that not having enough salt in your aquarium right um, but uh, also so fluoride bromide and, and iodide and there's some interesting stuff going on with with all of those potentially um, and I don't know that people are have like integrated fluoride into supplements or not um, it can be toxic and if I was a manufacturer, I wouldn't necessarily um, really be wild about shipping out a one molar fluoride solution and having people keep it under their aquariums where their kids can get into it and stuff like that because it can, you know, it can be really bad um, if they drank some of that. So that's one that could be frankly toxic, but um, is also depleted very rapidly from from aquariums. 
So um, I measured that, and I think that it was, uh, you know, the the half life was was in the range of a week or less. Fluoride for the system. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I, you know, the uh, the question I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, when, whenever I do ICP tests and I hear this a lot from a lot of reef keepers in terms of iron, it's always showing up uh, as as zero. It seems like, and that you you know, you talked about how quickly it can be depleted in a uh, in a in a reef aquarium. Can um, can you get into trouble by trying to get iron levels to show up in a test and by overdosing iron? Is that something to be concerned about? So I don't. So what? So ICP is such a funny thing, right? So I've never quite figured out what people are doing with their samples, our samples that we send to them. And uh, for elements like iron, which is just not very soluble in seawater, we're, we're sending a sample that's super saturated with respect to calcium carbonate. Um, and it may start dropping minerals in the tube on the way to be ICP tested. And one of the things that's going to come down with the calcium carbonate is iron. And so it will tend to strip uh, what's there. Um, some of the iron is, is probably present in organic complexes as well. Um, and then there's the limit of detection for various transition elements uh, with with the different systems. So the the optical emission spectroscopy ICP is not as sensitive as uh, the mass spec is for uh, uh, for metals. Um, and the but because there's so much uncertainty and like how do you work up my sample when I send it to you? Are you going to, do you acidify everything in the tube? In which case, I think you're going to recover all the, all the metals that I send to you um, that are at least not, not in bacteria. If bacteria grow and you filter the sample, um, is that going to remove metals? Well, people are adding, you know, organic stuff to their systems and you can get some bacterial growth. Um, you know, in seawater, if you put seawater in a bucket, you know, kind of like, it'll be a little slimy after a while, right? And that's a bacterial film, and it's grown off of whatever was present in the water, and bacteria need iron. And so the bacterial growth in, in the tube on the way to be ICP tested could also deplete the, the iron in the sample as well. Um, I'm frankly a little surprised that people aren't seeing iron in their aquariums because I saw it colorimetrically a long time ago um, at levels comparable to ICP testing and I I do believe those that method because there's really only one thing in the world that turns that particular compound pink and that's iron so it, it was in the water but you know I was taking those samples and I was taken out of the aquarium and I was doing the test right there so all this other weird stuff that happens in transit um, was was not going to happen with with those with those tests. Um, the limitation on the colorimetric stuff is that um, it may be there may be metals that are tied up in extremely tight complexes. So uh, iron is a very important element and. Uh, uh, 
algae and other bacteria will make these siderophilic uh, molecules that bind iron with like picomolar affinity and then they're big and then the 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 animal has a the organism has an uptake mechanism for that iron complex organic that it's made and so they can they can take it up at, at really effectively now if your colorimetric test can't pry it out of a complex like that then you would underrepresent the amount of, of total iron that's that's in the system with a colorimetric test whereas an icp test should basically pyrolyze everything and you should see all the, the iron that's actually present in the system uh, with a test like that. So um, I, I I think ICP is I think it's really cool that people are doing that and that that methodology is is available to people. Um, I do think that there are some limitations to it that are probably not completely appreciated. And a lot of those are related to what happens to the sample, you know, between my aquarium and the, the point point and time when it's analyzed. So what I'm hearing from you is that time in transit, the longer the time in transit, the potential there is that um, that, that could impact the validity of the data the longer it's in transit. It, it really depends on how the how the samples worked up, right? So if I uh, if I acidify all the samples and I, I then then I put all that stuff into the ICP um, I think I might be able to recover stuff even if it was originally tied up in bacteria maybe I don't know I haven't like I've done I did a, did a little bit of ICP a while ago um, and it was just it was just like taking too much of my time to go over and use the instrument on a, on a regular basis so uh, um, I, I can't answer these questions definitively, but um, actually, Rich Ross and I think Chris, Chris Moppin um, wrote a great article when the ICP testing stuff came started coming out, and that's that's a good thing to read, uh, just to to kind of like look at uh, think about the think about it critically. Um, and not just believe you know these these numbers because they're coming out of a really expensive machine. Um, you've got to have good sampling uh, technique to get, and, and you've got to actually you have to pose the question properly, right? And and have the samples uh, prepared accordingly to get the answer that you want. Yeah, you know it. it there, there's a lot of options out there for ICP testing, and, and um, what can make it even more confusing is that you could send out uh, samples, the same sample, to several different ICP, you know, testing companies, and come back with some kind of pretty different results for certain elements. Yeah, uh, just kind of like see above, right? So uh, they may have different procedures for for handling the samples once you get them, and when you're in the you're not in the calcium or magnesium regime anymore, where there's like a lot of this, this stuff in the in the water. Um, a little bit of biological uptake in the tube can can dramatically change the amount of, of metals that are actually still in solution. Even you know, I find phosphate can be a very difficult 
parameter to measure even via an ICP test. You know, I've gotten very different results for uh, from phosphate from different ICP test providers, and and you know, even like the hobby grade test kits, it can be a little frustrating. You know, why why is phosphate such a tough element to measure and get a handle on in this hobby? So phosphate is another one of these elements that can uh, be affected by uh, precipitation. So uh, it will come out with calcium carbonate. So you may be precipitating some inorganic phosphorus in the tube that's not measured on the way to the ICP um, facility. Um, uh, you know, or one, one place may do a really good job of, of getting all the stuff up, and so the numbers are higher than you expect them, and they may, not, they may even be higher than, than you measure with your hobby test kits. But your hobby test kits are probably only measuring uh, inorganic phosphate, so PO4 ions in solution. Um, but there's a lot of other forms that, that phosphorus uh, uh, it is present in, in the dissolved in, in water. So it can be tied up in organics as well. So uh, there's like phospholipids, uh, nucleotides, um, uh, all other kinds of stuff can have phosphorus um, on them that will not be measured by your hobby test kit, but that phosphorus is potentially quite accessible to microbes, uh, algae, bacteria in your system. So uh, they know how to uh, liberate the phosphorus and do with it as, as they wish, because that's what they're doing right that's how they that's how they get it if it turned out that you know oh well we use a phosphorus atom one time we put in an organic molecule and that's it you know uh life would have they you know not existed on on the planet earth so uh they're very good at, at breaking into this stuff so when i when i did um measurements of phosphorus a long time ago and i was using live samples like samples that i just collected and I do um, a total phosphorus measurement and an inorganic phosphorus measurement. There was always the total phosphorus was always at least a factor of two or three higher than the inorganic phosphate. So there's a bunch of organic phosphate in our systems. Um, and so if you, for example, sent a sample out for ICP analysis and the phosphorus was higher than you measured with your hobby test kit um, by a small factor, um, then I I might actually think that you're both right. So you're measuring inorganic phosphorus, and the ICP is measuring total phosphorus as it should, and you've gotten some some extra information about the system. Gotcha, um, Manny's Reef. Thank you so much for that super chat. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not going to wrap, and Dr. Craig is not going to be uh, beatboxing uh, for me. Maybe if you add a few zeros to that uh, super chat, then, then maybe that might happen. But <laughs> I appreciate though, man. He's really, really uh, appreciate it. A um, couple more quick questions, uh, Craig, and I'm going to let you go. One is, um, all right, talking about miners and trace elements in terms of dosing that to a uh, to a reef tank. What about the use of macro? You know for nutrient control, right? You got algae scrubbers, you refugiums, uh, algae reactors, what have you, to uh, help control the nitrates and the phosphates. But 
Is that macro pulling out those um, monitors and traces that you really want to keep in the system? Are, are you kind of like um, defeating the purpose in terms of doing that, or or is are, are the benefits of using macro going to um, you know can can you get around those those negatives in terms of using macro and what it would be pulling out of the system by dosing those traces? I mean, any uh, any biosimulation kind of uh, export mechanism that you've got. So it could be a turf scrubber, you know, algae. It could be macroalgae. Um, it could be um, the diatoms on your, on your glass that you swipe off and they go into your skimmer and your skimmer pulls them out, which is another. I mean, all that stuff is going to pull uh, not just nitrogen and phosphorus out of the system, but it's going to pull iron and, and all the other biologically important trace elements out as well. So um, I don't think that it's a unique uh, problem with any particular bioassimilation export technique. It's, it's common to all of them. And the answer is that you just have to make sure that, that you don't run out of iron or whatever it is, you know, that manganese or whatever else that, that might wind up being limiting in your system. Um, because that's going to have, if, if you are driving algal growth in your system um, they're competing for the same pool of those elements as the symbiotic uh, algae in your corals and your coralline algae are right so um, if they're running out then everything else is running out in your tank as well and that's that's not a good thing so if you're using uh, algae and for that um, purpose in terms of using macro would uh, would you recommend dosing trace elements i think that you just about have to yeah um, Okay. Um, one last question for you. Activated carbon, using that 24-7, good or bad? Not a simple answer. <laughs> um, it, it, so there's a lot of different kinds of carbon, and uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, different intensities of carbon use. So the amount of carbon that you've got on per water volume um, I think that you can have a successful reef aquarium and use have carbon activated carbon in the system all the time. Um, I think that you can have a successful system and use it somewhat more intermittently as well. But I don't think that there's anything intrinsically bad about having some carbon on your aquarium all the time, any more than. Uh, like skimmers pull potentially good stuff out of the out of the water as well, um, and so should you turn your skimmer off sometimes? I don't know, maybe, but you know you can have an okay, you can have a good aquarium with a skimmer that runs all the time. Um, if you're if you're using carbon, it depends on how like episodically people are using carbon. Um, if it goes too long between carbon applications, you can actually get a lot of yellow stuff building up in the water right. um, and, and have that change the light transmission um, of the water in the system pretty dramatically. So you've got to be careful when, when uh, you've got a lot of yellow water in your tank to kind of, I think, go slow and, and get rid of that. Unless, of course, it's like there's some emergency and you feel like... Um, 
there's something toxic in the water, you just have to get it out as soon as possible. But in, in that case, if you pull a lot of yellow color out of the water really fast, you might have to dial back on the lights a little bit to keep from, from shocking your corals. Gotcha. Well, listen, Craig, I want to uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here tonight. Really appreciate you taking the time and, and, um, yeah, yeah. It's been fun. Yeah, no, I'm well. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah, yeah, it. appreciate you uh, you being on, and would love to have you back on down the, uh, the road. I got uh, tons of other stuff to ask you, you know. So that's going to do it for the show. I want to again thank Craig for being on today's live stream, and I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for being sponsors of this show, and also want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in and watching and contributing to the chat. It was great. Also, a big thank you to Paul, who's the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. Also, want to let you know that all episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with Reef Bum live stream will be next Thursday, July 6, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Sonny Harjoli. I probably butchered uh, Sonny's name. I'm going to uh, make sure I get it right when I have him on next week. Some uh, actually might remember Sonny's uh, Rimless Reef Tank. I think it was Sonny X on the forums. So um, he's certainly a very talented reef keeper. I'm going to uh, look forward to having him on the uh, the show next week. Should be another great one. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. So until then, be safe and be well. Later. <laughs>